Good afternoon uh, to the viewers joining us live on C-SPAN and also online at uh, cato.org. Uh, just a note, you can follow the discussion on Twitter and submit questions for our panelists during the Q&A segment using the hashtag superpanels. I'll repeat that again before the Q&A. Uh, I should note up front, we are waiting um, for um, Boyden Gray, who unfortunately has been delayed on his flight from, from Florida, but he should be here shortly. Um, in the event that he's not able to make it, um, Trevor Burris has kindly agreed to take us through the constitutional issues as they relate to Dodd-Frank, uh, but he should be here shortly. So today we are discussing a recent trend in lawmaking that may have significant effects on our political and economic liberties, as well as the rule of law. To give some background and context, the Obama administration's first term was characterized by two large-scale legislative initiatives, covering two critical sectors of the United States economy. First, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and the second, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, otherwise known as Dodd-Frank. Aside from girth and complexity, these two initiatives are largely unrelated. However, they do have a theme in common. Both exhibit a departure from the established principle that Congress should oversee and supervise regulatory bodies that enact rules and that these bodies should be subject to clear statutory parameters. Dodd-Frank creates two new bodies, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or the FSOC, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. These bodies are tasked with far-reaching powers that include the power to determine which private companies are deemed systemically important, how they should be resolved, if they get bankrupted, if they get into trouble, and what standards should apply to banks and financial companies that interact with retail consumers. These are broad, wide-ranging powers. The Affordable Care Act creates the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is so independent that it doesn't have any meaning, meaningful congressional oversight. To discuss the constitutionality of these two uh, new super legislative bodies, as well as the impact that these bodies are likely to have on consumers in the healthcare and financial services industry and on the market generally, we have a great lineup of speakers today. First, Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. He has been at the forefront of measures to challenge the Affordable Care Act, both at the federal and the state levels. He is the author of several policy papers on the impact of the Affordable Care Act, including a paper on the constitutionality of the IPAB, and is a frequent commentator on health policy issues in the media. His most recent policy paper, and I have it here, 50 Votes, How States Can Stop the Obama Healthcare Law, is available outside and online. Please welcome Michael Cannon. Thank you, Louise, and, and, and thank you, Trevor, and, 
and, and Boyden, and thank all of you for, for coming here today. Uh, I want to uh, correct Louise. It's 50 vetoes, 50 oh. vetoes how states can stop the Obama health care law, because the, the law itself and the Supreme Court have given states the power to veto major provisions, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. And I'd like to start, actually, a little bit off top, uh, uh, with an item a little bit off topic as well. I want to start my remarks the same way I began a radio show this morning, which is to wish my father a happy 72nd birthday. Um, uh, he's, um, uh, he's, he's supposed to be joining us today. I think he is on Boyden's flight. Uh, and so he'll be here shortly. You might think that I'm a devoted son for uh, wanting to take time to wish my father a happy birthday here in this venue and, and on C-SPAN as well. You may change your opinion if you, uh, if you knew that uh, on a previous birthday, let me, say, let me just say that my father is already Medicare eligible. And on a previous birthday, the day he became Medicare eligible, I arranged to have printed in the Washington Times, a paper that my mother and father received at home, uh, an op-ed where I wished him a happy birthday. And I used the occasion of his becoming eligible for Medicare to talk about the Medicare program. And by the end of the op-ed, I toyed with the idea of throwing both of my parents out of Medicare as a way to solve Medicare's problems. Now, uh, if, if um, that may not make me sound like a very devoted son, but uh, it certainly bolsters my libertarian bona fides. And actually, I think it does make me uh, a more devoted son because when the time comes, uh, if, they, if Congress took my advice, and the time came that my parents had to move in with one of their children, I know which way the other four children would vote. They would vote for my parents to move in with me. Now, I don't know that that makes me a, a, very, uh, a very good husband, but that's for other people to judge. So what I'm gonna be talking about today is one of the most notorious features of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. This is the new government panel called the Independent Payment Advisory Board. If you've paid any attention to the debate over the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, you've heard the term death panels. When people talk about a death panel in Obamacare, they are talking about the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which I will refer to as IPAB. This is a panel of 15 appointed experts, which as soon as 2015, will propose to Congress ways of reducing Medicare spending and improving the quality of medical care for uh, Medicare enrollees, the elderly, and the disabled. Now, the story of how IPAB came to be is an interesting one. It shows how putting government in control of the economy or a sector of the economy threatens not just economic freedom, but also political freedom and ultimately the rule of law and the Constitution itself. So I find IPAB frightening, not because it's a death panel. Frankly, uh, if I, I was on the fence on this one for a while, but if we're going to have a Medicare program, I am pro-death panel. I want there to be a budget constraint. I want uh, the government to say no to certain, to certain wasteful expenditures in Medicaid. IPAP doesn't frighten me because it's a death panel. It frightens me because it's a super legislature. In many ways, IPAP sits apart from and above Congress. IPAP has the power to make laws independent of Congress and without any accountability to the people who live under those laws. It gets to impose laws that Congress would never pass. In fact, the Patient Prote Protection and Affordable Care Act, which I'll refer to as the PPACA, was written to make it as hard as possible for Congress to stop IPAB from legislating. The changes uh, that, that to Medicare that IPAB is going to submit to Congress are not merely proposals. These are laws. They take effect automatically. Under, now, under the Constitution, when a member of Congress introduces a legislative proposal, 
That legislative proposal has to secure the approval of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the President, except in instances where the Congress overrides a presidential veto, in order to become law. In all cases, either chamber of Congress has the power to stop that legislative proposal. That is not so with IPAB. When IPAB submits one of its legislative proposals to Congress, it becomes law automatically. The statute requires the, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services to implement that proposal. Now, if the people's elected representatives want to block an IPAB proposal, the House and the Senate and the President have to agree on a substitute for that proposal. So IPAB's so-called proposals can therefore become law without any congressional action, without congressional approval, and without meaningful congressional oversight or even being subject to a presidential veto. They, if they just become law unless Congress, uh, unless the House and the Senate and the President agree on a substitute. And furthermore, citizens will have no power to challenge IPAB's edicts in court because the PPACA prohibits judicial review. It gets even worse than that, though, because IPAB's lawmaking power is not just confined to Medicare, such as the power to change uh, how or how much Medicare pays for what services uh, for services for Medicare enrollees. IPAB can actually ration care for patients in government programs. This is the death panel aspect of, of, of IPAB. IPAB can say, no, you're not going to get that treatment that you want. Now, the statute explicitly forbids IPAB from rationing care. Nevertheless, IPAB can ration care for patients in government programs be, in spite of that because, for one thing, the statute explicitly authorizes the board to dictate prices for Medicare-covered services. Price controls are a very concrete, albeit implicit, form of rationing. Just ask any low-income mother who has tried to find a dentist who will accept Medicaid uh, coverage for her children. Even though it's officially forbidden, IPAB can still engage in explicit rationing. In other words, denying coverage for particular services to Medicare enrollees. Now, the law says that they cannot do that. I say that IPAB can. Why do I make that claim? Because first, the statute lets IPAB itself define what rationing is. The statute doesn't define the term rationing. IPAB gets to define the term rationing, and IPAB uh, its decisions, as I mentioned before, are exempt from judicial review. So, in other words, the sole authority on whether IPAB has violated the prohibition on IPAB rationing care is IPAB itself. Second, there's nothing else in any, uh, to enforce this or any other supposed constraint on IPAB's power. The only constraint the statute imposes on that which it forbids IPAB to do is the same constraint that it imposes on that which it permits IPAB to do. Namely, the House and the Senate and the President all have to agree, agree on a substitute proposal. In other words, there is nothing stopping IPAB, nothing in the statute stopping IPAB from explicitly rationing care. IPAB can also ration care to patients even if the government isn't paying their medical bills. All it has to do is claim that imposing price controls on the private sector or requiring private insurers to deny coverage for particular services is somehow related to the Medicare program. That's the term of art that the statute has. The IPAB, IPAB, IPAB can propose whatever it wants as long as it's related to the Medicare program. And that's a very loose standard. And even if it weren't loose, again, IPAB's definition of what is related to the Medicare program is exempt from judicial review. 
In addition, IPAB could even increase taxes. Again, the statute says it cannot. But again, the only constraint the statute imposes on that which it forbids IPAB to do is the same constraint it imposes on things it authorizes IPAB to do. Namely, the House and the Senate and the President have to agree on a substitute proposal, all of which means that IPAB can go ahead and propose whatever tax increases it wants, and if Congress doesn't stop them, then the Secretary of Health and Human Services can collect those taxes. It gets worse. The statute tries to prevent future Congresses from repealing IPAB. The authors of the statute knew that IPAB was going to make lots of unpopular decisions. They wanted it to make lots of unpopular decisions. And so they knew that lots of people would want to get rid of it. So they included language that forbids Congress from repealing IPAB outside of a seven-month window in the year 2017. Even then, Congress would have to muster a three-fifths majority in both chambers to repeal it. If IPAB's authors had their way, this would be the most unrepealable provision in federal law. After 2017, Congress could repeal Medicare, but not the border created to run Medicare. Congress, along with the states, could repeal the Bill of Rights if it wanted to, but it could not repeal IPAB. And even if Congress succeeded in repealing IPAB in 2017, the PPACA continues to grant IPAB the power to legislate for six months after Congress has repealed it. It gets worse. Diane Cohen is an attorney of the, uh, with the Liberty Justice Center in Illinois. Last year, she and I published a paper, uh, we, we authored a paper, it was published by the Cato Institute, where we were the first to report on an even more disturbing feature of the IPAB statute. That is this. If Congress misses that narrow seven-month window in 2017 that the in which the statute allows it to repeal IPAB, then the statute prohibits Congress from ever altering another IPAB proposal. IPAP could go on writing laws free from interference from Congress forever. And as bad as that sounds, it gets worse. Because all of the aforementioned powers under the statute could fall into the hands of a single individual. The statute requires that IPAP members be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Now, these nominations are bound to be controversial. Think about all the controversy that attended uh, President Obama's nomination of Don Berwick to run Medicare. There are charges of death panels. This guy's going to be a uh, death panelist. He's going to ration care. He's praised the National Health Service, et cetera, et cetera. The president ultimately had to recess appoint Berwick because of all the controversy. He knew that he would never get Berwick uh, uh, even a vote in the Senate, and even then, uh, he probably wouldn't be confirmed. So there have been media reports about how nobody who's qualified to serve on the IPAB even wants to be even wants to be nominated because none of them want to go through that grueling and nasty confirmation process that's certain to ensue. Fortunately or unfortunately, we might say, the statute provides for such an eventuality. If IPAB fails to produce the required legislative proposals for any reason, either because the president hasn't appointed anyone to the board, or because the Senate hasn't confirmed anyone to the board, or because IPAB is just uh, can't agree on a proposal, uh, or because the members of the board are just slacking off and not doing their work. For it, if any of these uh, conditions uh, or, or any of uh, any of these things occur, then all of IPAB's powers, all the power those powers to write laws without uh, that, that take effect automatically, fall to one person the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who is then empowered to issue her own legislative proposals that can ration care, that can impose taxes, that can even appropriate funds to her own department 
She would, she would control the power of the purse as well as these other powers. Now, if you're a Democrat, uh, then that might, uh, and you trust Kathleen Sebelius, the current Secretary of Human Services, if you trust Barack Obama with these powers, that might not concern you very much. Maybe it should, uh, because one of President Obama's own advisors has proposed using IPAB to uh, usher in, without congressional approval, a Paul Ryan-style uh, Medicare voucher program. It's a Harvard uh, economist named David Cutler. He's actually proposed this. It's a little different from the Ryan proposal, but he suggested that IPAB could do that without congressional authorization. So even if you're a Democrat, that should concern you. But even if that doesn't, what if the next Republican president goes ahead and nominates Paul Ryan to be Secretary of Health and Human Services? Regardless of your political persuasion, this sort of, uh, this sort of discretionary power should concern you. So not only is it unlikely that the Senate will confirm anyone who will serve on this board, it's also unlikely that President Obama will nominate anyone. Think about it. Why would he? He's already got his person in there. That's, this is why when President Obama won re-election, I predicted there's absolutely zero chance that Kathleen Sebelius uh, would join the exodus, exodus of cabinet secretaries and zero chance the president would ask her to leave even though she broke a federal law that restricts political activities by executive branch officials. And that's because Kathleen Sebelius is the one person who would not need to be reconfirmed as HHS secretary. She could assume all of IPAB's powers without the Senate ever examining her fitness to wield those powers. She is the only person in the universe who could assume IPAB's powers without that scrutiny, without having to face a, uh, a Senate confirmation. So as, as you may have gleaned, the IPAB is not just unconstitutional. I mean, it's so un unconstitutional, it's absurd. Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. The PPACA attempts to <coughs> delegate to IPAB legislative powers that the Congress clearly reserves and, or that the Constitution vests solely in Congress. Those are the powers to tax, the powers to spend funds, and so forth. Furthermore, IPAB tries to deny, the IPAB statute tries to deny future Congresses their basic legislative powers, powers that are granted in the Constitution, and they thereby and it thereby attempts to diminish Congress's constitutional authority, not through the amendment process of Article 5, but by statute. So IPAB is not just unconstitutional, it's anti-constitutional. Now, how did things ever reach this point? How did, we ever, how did things ever get so bad that more than 218 members of the House of Representatives, 60 U.S. Senators, and one U.S. President would enact a statute that would empower a single unelected official to become essentially an economic dictator holding dominion over one-sixth of the U.S. economy? Well, the reason is this. For decades, Congress has been trying to manage America's healthcare sector to engage in what we call centralized economic planning, and Congress has proven itself to be an exceptional failure in this, in this regard, in, in this area. Congress gets involved in, uh, in, in, in managing the healthcare sector in, in countless ways. One of the earliest and biggest ways is by creating a tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance that herds nine out of 10 people with private insurance into an employer-sponsored plan. That's what the private sector looks like in the United States. But probably the biggest way that Congress tries to plan the sector of our economy is through the Medicare program. The Medicare program 
covers the elderly and the disabled in the United States, about 50 million people. But these are also the 50 million sickest people in the United States. So Medicare is the largest purchaser of medical services in the United States and indeed in the entire world. So the way that Medicare purchases medical services for its enrollees is probably the most sweeping form of regulatory power that Congress has over the healthcare sector. Because doctors, hospitals, medical device manufacturers, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and so forth, they all have to uh, 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 build their business models around how Medicare pays and for what it will pay. And so uh, after 47 years of centralized economic planning through uh, the Medicare program, we've seen the results. We've seen how well Congress plans this sector of the economy. And the results are abysmal. Almost immediately after Medicare was enacted, healthcare spending exploded. Medicare spending has, has grown more than two and a half times faster than the economy for most of its history. It has spawned about one tax increase, that exploding spending has spawned about one tax increase, at least one tax increase, every four years, just trying to keep up with that spending. But the worst part about Medicare is not the waste, even though the best evidence available suggests that one-third of Medicare spending does absolutely nothing to help patients. The worst part has got to be the quality problems that exist in uh, America's healthcare sector and are, if not created, then exacerbated by the Medicare program. And the worst, or the biggest critics of the Medicare program here are healthcare researchers, most of whom are left of center and supporters of the Medicare program. They will tell you that the way Medicare pays for medical services either creates or exacerbates most of the quality problems that we see in the US healthcare sector. One of the biggest is medical errors. The best evidence available suggests that we lose two and a half to five times as many lives per year from medical errors as we do from people uh, uh, not uh, uh, people lacking health insurance, uh, as we do from our uninsured problem, as some people put it. The Medicare program actually exacerbates that problem because Medicare pays on a fee-for-service basis, which means the more services physicians provide, the more fees they collect. So if a patient is injured by a medical error and requires more services, that physician gets paid more. Now, this does not mean that Medicare or that physicians go out and try to injure patients in order to collect those additional fees. But think about how Medicare treats a physician, a, a physician practice, if it adopt, or a hospital, if it adopts measures that try to reduce medical errors. If it reduce, if they invest in those uh, procedures, if they, in, if they make those investments, then medical errors fall and the physicians collect fewer payments from Medicare. So not only are they out the initial investment, they also get paid less for providing higher quality care. The same problem happens when it comes to uh, care coordination. Lots of errors come because doc doctors don't talk to themselves about a shared patient. The Medicare's fee-for-service payment system actually punishes the coordination of care in, in many of the same ways. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, what happens when Congress tries to fix these problems? What happens when Congress tries to weed out Medicare spending? Well, the, uh, the evidence isn't pretty. When Congress tries to uh, conduct co comparative effectiveness research to determine which procedures are benefiting patients and which procedures are, are not benefiting patients as much, 
they over and over again have, have failed at this task because whenever Congress charters a government agency to conduct this research, whenever, con whenever Congress does anything to try to improve the quality of care or reduce the cost of care in Medicare, those efforts come under a barrage of lobbying by high cost, low quality providers whose revenue streams are threatened by those efforts. For example, when Congress has created agencies to do comparative effectiveness research, they, they routinely get, uh, get zeroed out under, under intense lobbying pressure from the healthcare industry. The National, healthcare Cent the National Center for Healthcare Technology met that fate in 1981. The Council on Healthcare Technology met that fate in 1989. The Office of Technology Assessment met the same fate in 1995. And the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research effectively met the same fate in 1995. These are all examples of, uh, of, of Congress failing to weed out wasteful spending in Medicare. Or take uh, uh, other efforts to reduce uh, uh, the, uh, the prices that Medicare pays for certain services or certain episodes of care. According to the Kaiser Health Network News Service, quote, Medicare has conducted hundreds of tests called pilots or demonstration programs since the mid-1970s, but can't apply them to the entire system without congressional approval. One of the reasons for this is that, uh, or, or the main reason that Kaiser cited was that the, whenever a pilot program proves successful at reducing the cost of medical care, and they rarely do, but even when they do, those pilot programs are blocked by sector, sections of the industry whose revenue streams are threatened. So, and one of the justifications for IPAB that was offered by supporters is Congress has a Medicare, or, or another example of this is Congress has a commission called the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission that advises Medicare on how to change its fee-for-service payment system, how to adjust the prices that it sets in that payment system. And uh, Congress routinely ignores these recommendations that would reduce Medicare spending and eliminate wasteful expenditures. So, so how, does all, how, how did we get from here to IPAB? Well, it was actually explained fairly well back in 1944 by a, a man who would go on 30 years later to win the Nobel Prize uh, in, in economics. This is an Austrian-born economist named Friedrich Hayek. And he explained in his 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom, that when, when legislative bodies put themselves in control of uh, or, or, or set about the task of trying to plan a sector of the economy, that creates pressure for uh, for that legislature to hand over more and more power to more and more authority uh, to independent bodies and move from being a democracy to a more authoritarian authoritarian form of government. Hayek wrote of of these uh, of this dynamic quote: "It may be the unanimously expressed will of the people that its parliament should prepare a comprehensive economic plan. Yet neither the people nor its representatives need therefore be able to agree on any particular plan." The inability of democratic assemblies to carry out what seems to be a clear mandate of the people will inevitably cause dissatisfaction with democratic institutions. Parliaments come to be regarded as ineffective talking shops, unable or incompetent to, to carry out the tasks for which they've been chosen. The conviction grows that if efficient planning is to be done, the direction must be taken out of politics and placed in the hands of experts, permanent officials, or independent autonomous bodies. Of course, Hayek continues, the expedient of delegation cannot really remove the causes which make the advocates of comprehensive planning so impatient uh, with the impotence of democracy. Agreement that planning is necessary, together with the inability of democratic assemblies to produce a plan, will evoke stronger and stronger demands that the government or some single individual 
should be given powers to act on their own responsibility. The belief is becoming more and more widespread that if things are to get done, the responsible authorities must be freed from the fetters of democratic procedure. The cry for an economic dictator is a characteristic stage in the movement toward, toward planning. And you can see everything that Hayek described here in the debate running up to the enactment of the Independent Payment Advisory Board and the complaints that supporters of, of the PPACA and IPAB made about met the Medicare program and government planning of the healthcare sector. For example, Tom Daschle, who was a former Senate Majority Leader and President Obama's first pick to be his health reform czar, had proposed a board similar to IPAB whose, quote, recommendations would have teeth, as Daschle put it. And Daschle wrote, while there's general agreement on basic reform principles, the traditional legislative process has failed to deliver. There's a strong argument to be made that appointed experts proceeding in a deliberate, sometimes plotting way, would make better healthcare decisions than politicians. After nearly a century of failure, it's time to try another way. As it turns out, IPAB has even more teeth than, I, than Daschle had proposed because under Daschle's proposal, Congress could overturn his, uh, the board's decisions. Another example is a University of Chicago public health professor named Harold Pollack who wrote, quote, we must reduce congressional micromanagement of Medicare policy in favor of, quote, a more centralized approach. Despite many reasons for caution, I'm becoming more of a believer in an imperial presidency in domestic policy. Congress seems too screwed up and fragmented to address our most uh, pressing problems. And perhaps the biggest proponent of the IPAP uh, type approach was Peter Orzag, who was President Obama's director of the Office of Management and Budget and a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. He wrote in an article titled, Why We Need Less Democracy, quote, what we need are ways around our politicians. Uh, as Orzag wrote, the problem with representative government is the representative part. Quote, in other words, radical as it sounds, we need to counter the gridlock of our political institutions by making them a bit less democratic. I believe we need to jettison the Civics 101 fairy tale about pure representative democracy and instead begin to build a new set of rules and institutions that would make legislative inertia less detrimental to our nation's long-term health. Those rules included creating more independent institutions like IPAB that can impose taxes and other laws without representation. He, Orzag continues, quote, Perhaps the most dramatic example of this is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. He writes uh, that he wishes it were not necessary to vest so much power in unelected uh, and unaccountable government officials. Alas, quote, certain aspects of representative government can end up posing serious problems, and so we might be a healthier democracy if we were a slightly less democratic one. And so you can see how Congress's failures have, as Hayek predicted, led to more and more pressure for these more authoritarian forms of government. I think if you look elsewhere throughout the federal government, you can see this happening as Congress has shifted more power over, over the lawmaking process to the administrative state. And I think the, 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 the most extreme example of that is the Independent Payment Advisory Board itself. So I look forward to, uh, to what Trevor and Boyden have to say and to taking your questions. Thank you. So we're very pleased that uh, U.S. Airways cooperated and uh, delivered our keynote speaker today um, on time. Uh, Boyd and Gray has a long and distinguished career as a lawyer, diplomat, and public servant. He has served most recently as the Special Envoy for European Affairs and the Special Envoy for Eurasian Energy at the mission of the United States to the European Union. He has served as the United States Ambassador to the European Union, 
Prior to that, he was a partner with the law, law firm Wilma Hale here in DC. He has also served as White House counsel to the first uh, President Bush and was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal by President Bush in 1993. In addition, he has served as counsel to the Presidential Task Force on Regulatory Relief under President Ronald Reagan. Following his departure from the public sector, Ambassador Gray has continued his commitment to public service through his involvement as a board member of Freedom Works and his own consultancy, Boyd and Gray and Associates, where he focuses on constitutional and regulatory issues. Most recently, in this capacity, he has been one of the parties challenging the constitutionality of various provisions of Dodd-Frank. Please welcome me. Uh, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Gray. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was a uh, special envoy, in addition to being ambassador. Um, back in the Bush 43 administration, there were very few special envoys, so it was very special. And um, so special, in fact, that uh, um, I was invited to, on my last night in Brussels, to go to a dinner given by the commanding general of the European Defense Force in Brussels. Um, you may scratch your head just a bit and wonder, what is the European Defense Force? And I would have to respond, there probably is no such thing. But he commanded a house and a chef and a staff and so nicely invited me and sent along a guest list to entice me uh, to go. I, I, of course, I couldn't my last night. Um, but I was identified as Seaboy and Gray U.S. Special Convoy. So <laughs> I have many titles. Um, the final paragraphs of, of your previous speaker uh, lead pretty well into uh, the examples that I'm going to give. I really don't have a better introduction than what you've just heard. Um, uh, he took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, I, I would uh, question whether IPAB is the worst thing we now see on the, on the um, economic front. Um, I think it is worse than the two examples I'm going to describe to you in a theoretical sense, but uh, since it deals with uh, taxpayer money by and large, if I think I'm right about that, of what that is what Medicare is going to uh, give seniors, um, it is probably not totally inappropriate that the government have something to say about how that money is spent. Uh, the Dodd-Frank situation, on the other hand, is your money. Uh, at least one would think it would be your money or, or my money. And so when the government takes that in a summary way without any accountability, I think it is a little bit, a little bit different and worse. Now, one could argue about that, but I think... Uh, um, What's ours is ours until, until totally taken from us. But Dodd-Frank doesn't, uh, doesn't recognize that. Um, the two chief offenders are the Consumer Bureau and the Financial Resolution Authority, uh, Titles 10 for the Consumer Bureau and 2 for uh, the Resolution Authority, which is uh, in some ways thought of as the bailout provision. Um, let me first start with the Consumer Bureau. 
it's probably better known, probably been in the press more because of um, the career of Senator Warren, who proposed it, um, and now is in the Senate uh, supporting it. Uh, but it's at the same time criticizing Tubic DeFeo, which is an interesting uh, 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 sort of um, split on her part. Uh, but the Consumer Bureau is, is well known. It is totally unaccountable in that um, the president appoints the, the director for a term and then is precluded uh, from any influence over what he does uh, or she does. The OMB is precluded from reviewing the budget. Um, the Congress is precluded uh, from exercising any review authority because it provides none of the money. The money all comes from the Federal Reserve, which itself is precluded by law from having anything to say with what the Consumer Bureau does with its money. And I'm told now that the Consumer Bureau has no pay caps, so it's it's, it's uh, stealing all of the best people out of the Fed system, um, which is sweet revenge. Um, and the uh, appropriations committees of both House and Senate are literally precluded from reviewing uh, the, the, the budgets. Even though they couldn't appropriate any money, uh, they still can't review the budgets anyway. I don't have fear that the Sergeant-at-Arms is going to arrest either chairman if he or she tries to hold a hearing, but that's what the legislation actually actually says. And as for the courts, uh, they're supposed to defer to the Consumer Bureau as, a, as though it were the only agency that had anything to do with any of this. And the Consumer Bureau is given some 18 statutes uh, to now monopolize at the expense of uh, a dozen or so uh, uh, agencies that have been in business um, grappling with ordinary judicial review. Now the Consumer Bureau sweeps in and is granted automatic deference, something which is a court-made doctrine, as you all know. I'm not aware of any statute that grants any agency um, deference to its interpretation. Uh, what the courts can give in terms of deference, the courts can take away. And the Chevron Doctrine, for those of you wonky lawyers in the audience, if there are any, uh, is honored in the breach as much as the performance, but not under Dodd-Frank. It must, it must be deferred to. So there really is no way to get into this, this wall garden uh, to uh, stop what, it, what it's doing. And uh, it has, uh, therefore, a clean slate to write on 18 different consumer statutes that have everything to do with the granting of credit. Uh, and it also has the authority to interpret a new word called abusive uh, in the statute, that it can stop anything that it thinks is abusive. And Cordray, the current director, uh, who is there by grace of um, uh, recess appointment, which you can ask about if you'd like, but that's not central to our case, uh, although it's part of it. And I'm happy to talk about it because it's enormous fun. Um, but Cordray has said, you know, the word abusive is a bit of a puzzle. I think we're not going to define it in advance. We'll just do it on a case-by-case -case approach, and you'll know it when we've told you it. 
uh, after you've done it. Uh, this, is, this is really quite extraordinary and uh, kind of throws out the window uh, 60 years of development of, a, of administrative law in the United States where, um, unlike most of the countries and certainly unlike uh, the EU, uh, we have prided ourselves on being transparent and open and predictive, uh, telegraphing in very clear terms with plenty of, of uh, political opportunity to comment and to seek review, judicial review, uh, where agencies will tell you this is what we think the phrase means, and you can comment on it, you can appeal it, and then, but after all the dust settles, you at least have some sense uh, of what it means. Uh, in this case, Cordray said, well, I'll let you know after you've gone to jail. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, a very big grant of power, and I think it makes your point about where all this stuff ends up. Uh, if anything could be worse, it's the Resolution Authority. Uh, the Resolution Authority, oh, by the way, just, just to give you a sense of, uh, of how, how helpful this is, um, the Consumer Bureau has unburdened itself of, I don't know, maybe a thousand pages of what is, of what, of what is a good mortgage and a bad mortgage, uh, uh, supposedly to make things clear for consumers. <laughs> And uh, I can assure you that they're reading a thousand pages of turgid Federal Register prose is not helpful. Um, and out the window, uh, basically, um, unless you live in a very, very, very delicately described uh, definition of rural, uh, you can't give what's known as a character loan, which the or a relationship loan, which is what, what community banks have done for 100 years or more. They grant loans based on the reputation of the credit of the lend of the uh, debtor in the community. Uh, they, of course, will look at whatever balance sheet information there might be, uh, but sometimes there is no balance sheet information. Um, and they will, they will uh, do their business based on their assessment of the person's willingness determination and ability to uh, repay. Uh, the irony is, is that in the Consumer Bureau's own rulemaking papers are citations to at least two studies which show quite clearly that the repayment uh, reliability of a so-called character loan is far greater than what they are asking people to sign up for uh, in the detailed rules that you have to check off. And, uh, basically, to make a long story short, what a lender has to do now is give his his um, his borrower his Miranda or her Miranda warnings uh, before they can be given any money. Uh, you have the right to uh, you will go to jail. Right, everything you say will be held against you. You have a right to a lawyer, and if you don't have one, we'll pay for one. That's basically what. Uh, and certainly, don't borrow any money until you're absolutely sure uh, about all of these rights that you uh, that you now have, whether you want them or not. Um, the bailout provision, uh, the Resolution Authority, throws out about 100 years of bankruptcy code law and development and sort of has a black box jump ball kind of thing about what happens when somebody gets into trouble or somebody is put into trouble by uh, the federal government. Um, here again, uh, the executive branch is given um, uh, Pretty, pretty much insulation from the political part of it, that is from the White House, and they can go in and they can seize any institution 
uh, they want. Um, uh, basically, any financial institution of any relevant size uh, just ought to say so that A, the institution is in financial distress, and B, that distress in turn poses a risk uh, to the stabi financial stability of the United States. Uh, now, in reviewing this, the courts can look at whether or not the institution uh, is or is not in financial distress, but they are expressly prohibited uh, from reviewing the question in judicial review of whether that distress of the corner drugstore uh, is posing a risk to the, to the mighty United States itself. Uh, that's off limits. Uh, so uh, the courts basically have lost control over this. Uh, the courts are only given 24 hours to respond to a reorganization plan put forward by the government anyway, the Treasury and the FDIC, uh, and no court in a, in a complex uh, situation is going to be able to respond in 24 hours. And so uh, basically the court is going to be forced to say, we go with whatever it is you put in front of us, and, you know, maybe 1,000 pages or 5,000 pages. And uh, that then becomes what happens. Um, the um, proceedings are secret. And if you seek relief by leaking it to your friendly uh, reporter at the Post or the Times, you go straight to jail. You don't collect $200. When you pass go, you go straight to jail. There are criminal penalties, uh, uh, financial and um, jail, uh, for uh, talking about this to anybody um, while it's happening. Uh, Congress, of course, is cut out because the uh, funding to keep alive, shuttle money around, pay off whichever creditors the black box feels like paying off. Uh, that money comes from a loan, and then it's paid off over time by an assessment, which looks very much like a tax, uh, which is on all financial institutions. It would make maybe some modicum of sense if this tax were related or limited to those entities, commercial banks, who enjoy uh, deposit insurance, but it's not so limited any financial institution. And so uh, the taxing authority is divorced again, or the funding authority is divorced again from Congress. Um, now, th these, two, these two entities, these two proceedings, cover a very great deal of what, of what happens to the, to the circulation of credit and money in uh, an economy, which is sort of the lifeblood. And uh, it is not impossible to see over time uh, these uh, bureaucrats with no accountability to Congress, the courts, or uh, the executive branch um, creating a real mess of things. Uh, can Congress straighten it out? Can the public straighten it out? I don't know. Uh, I've gotten to the point where, um, after spending many years in Washington, uh, where I never thought uh, that I would be so hopelessly dependent on a very few judges, uh, primarily in the, the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court, to trigger some sort of uh, backlash uh, on, this, um, on this development, because I don't know politically how else it's going to get um, teed up. Uh, it's, to me, very, very scary. How, how many more examples are there, like uh, the IPAB, like the Consumer Bureau, uh, like uh, the Resolution Authority. Uh, I don't know. I sometimes think that EPA's been like that for most of my professional career. Uh, it certainly does whatever it feels like. 
uh, unless the courts uh, trip it up, which is quite frequently, actually. Um, so we've been lucky uh, with EPA that the courts have been so um, attentive. Uh, the SEC has been bounced around a little bit, too. Uh, but we are ending uh, the, the, the terms of or the, or the careers of many of the judges pointed uh, in the Reagan-Bush years. And so I worry about what happens when they've all finally uh, uh, retired. I'll stop there. Happy to answer any questions. But, this, but the development, the trend, is not a good one. We do have a little bit of a time constraint. I know um, Ambassador Gray has to move on to another uh, uh, event. So I would like to take us to Q&A now. Um, a few things. Please wait until you are called on um, and until the mic gets to you, because we are filming live on C-SPAN, and so the audience um, at home needs to hear the, uh, the, the question. Um, again, uh, if you are participating online, you can send us questions at hashtag superpanels, and we'll read them out and, and answer them. Uh, so with that, anybody got any questions? Yes, thank you. Excuse me. As I recall, the the Supreme Court uh, held under uh, the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley bill that I think it was an accounting commission or some aspect of it uh, violated the Constitution for lack of uh, of uh, accountability, uh, political accountability, uh, but was able to cure that with a relatively narrow fix. It strikes me here that that the the boards created under both uh, the uh, Dodd-Frank and Obamacare have such uh, widespread and serious constitutional problems that they can only be addressed by just holding, you know, that the, the, the boards facially um, violate the Constitution and, and, and their, that their very existence is, uh, is unconstitutional. I'm wondering if any of the panelists have a response to that. Well, what you're referring to, I think, is known colloquially as the Peekaboo case, which is the Financial Oversight um, Board appointed actually by the SEC, not by the President. And it was that double insulation from accountability that underpinned the Supreme Court decision in that, uh, in that case. Um, it's not exactly the same. We don't have that same double insulation in either the case of example of the Consumer Bureau or uh, the Resolution Authority. But your your general point is right right on that that case we will heavily rely on, and it is a signal we hope uh, that the court is looking at this very very carefully, and it has uh, provoked uh, other concurrences and dissents and other related cases. Uh, enough to suggest that uh, we would be remiss not to raise the bigger, the bigger issue as we are doing. And so we take some heart from that case, but unfortunately it does not answer uh, definitively all the questions that are being raised yet.
I hesitate to call this a, a or, or to start the sentence with fortunately, but fortunately, the IPAB provisions of the PPACA are so absurdly unconstitutional that the Congress has, has, has ignored them in that it has voted repeatedly to repeal the entire law, even though the statute says that Congress cannot repeal the IPAD provisions except for between uh, January and August of 2017. Uh, as, for, as for a court challenge, uh, Trevor might know more about this than I do. There has been a, a case that has been brought in Arizona. I, th I think they were not able to establish standing. Uh, and so uh, that that is on appeal at this point. Trevor might be able to say more about those particulars. Uh, yeah, that case uh, coming out of Goldwater. Um, the standing issue right now is a problem, uh, which is difficult in terms of trying to strike down the whole law, because right now these boards are not ne necessarily enforcing anything. And generally the rule is until you have an adverse action against you. Uh, this might be a problem uh, in Boyden's case particularly. Uh, it might be the case you might have to have your entire firm liquidated by this CFPB or FSOC before you can bring a case. And then it would be difficult to bring a facial challenge, more difficult to bring a facial challenge than an as-applied challenge. The irony here is, of course, that uh, when they pass these laws that reform or seek to reform the entire economy, generally we try to have severability clauses. And in the case you mentioned, the Free Enterprise Fund versus Peekaboo case, they severed the board, even though that's generally considered to be a, a fatal detriment to a law if the board is unconstitutional. But they severed it because the consequences of striking out a whole law that controls so much of the economy are too big for the court to deal with. And that's the pickle that this puts us in, is the same pickle we had with Obamacare. There, I think that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts was afraid of striking out a huge law. So Congress gets a benefit to pass huge laws because it's far less likely that they'll be struck down in total. Do we have any additional questions? No, well, I actually, I have one, one question. Um, I've seen one of the issues um, with specifically the Dodd-Frank law uh, 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 litigation is the issue of standing. So to, to follow on from what Trevor's saying is we're trying to establish standing now for, for your plaintiffs. Could you speak a little to that? Because it is really hard to determine standing until you've actually been affected by the law. And that creates this kind of catch-22 situation. Yes. Um, we don't think that you have to be destroyed before you can sue, um, in which case, of course, if you're dead, you're dead, and who's actually suing? There's a real standing question there. Um, uh, so we don't think that that's going to be the result, but let, let me give a little bit of the, of the sort of wonky background. The courts have been tough about letting just anybody in to challenge uh, statutes, so you have to show some sort of injury. Uh, the theory is that the Supreme Court deals only with cases or controversies, doesn't render advisory opinions, and so they got to have a real, a real case before them that they're uh, resolving. And in the case of the Consumer uh, Bureau, uh, the the argument will be made, has been made by the government that, well, there is no rule, no specific rule that you can show that's really uh, puts you into harm's way, and. Uh, Thank God there is um, a lot of case law which says, well, you don't really have to be uh, severely damaged before you can seek review. Uh, it is enough if you have had to spend a lot of money, or for you a lot of money, um, to find out what 
uh, are your rights and obligations under a particular statutory regime? And in this case, we have one little uh, bank, a $300 million com community bank in Big Springs, Texas. This is not this is not a destination spot for anybody's engagement or wedding. Um, uh, but it um, it is a mainstay of the community, as are most community uh, banks, and it has had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to understand what it can and cannot do uh, under under Dodd Frank. And little institutions like this do not. Uh, sort of have a huge overhead uh, the way some of the biggest banks do uh, who can absorb reviewing uh, 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 Federal Register uh, regs and law firms, of course. Um, I'm happy always to do it if anybody wants to ask me. Uh, I'm in business. Um, but uh, little banks don't have the money or the staff to do this. Um, I'm told that J.P. Morgan, uh, of course, not only has its own staff, but when this thing was happening in London, they had two or 300 regulators embedded in the institution itself. Um, little banks in Big Spring, Texas don't have uh, the benefit of, um, of uh, Federal Reserve Board regulators uh, embedded in their staff who can help them uh, figure out what regulators are trying to do to them. So we think um, the expenditure that this bank has had to make in order to make sure that it uh, isn't isn't put out of business. Um, <coughs> we think that's strong enough. On the question of the resolution authority, uh, we think that um, before this law was passed, that a state we have in this in this case eleven state attorneys general suing on behalf of their pension funds or other um, assets, which the, uh, which are up in the air. I mean, you don't know anymore whether you have. Um, rights in bankruptcy, you know you don't actually, but you don't know where you come out. And so they're saying, we don't have to wait. We've lost a, a right which we had for 100 years. It's been taken away from us. We don't know what we have now. Uh, there is no right to, to, to seek redress under the Tucker Act, which is the back doorway of saving um, railroad reorganization cases back in the 70s. Supreme Court rule where you can always go into the Court of Claims and claim that you are subject to a taking, but that's been cut off by this legislation. They had good lawyers write it to make sure that there was no way you could question uh, what was what was happening to you. And we think uh, this is going to be sufficient to uh, get a court's uh, interest. Um, I don't think members of the Supreme Court are going to be are going to like being told uh, that certain aspects of the case are excluded from their review. We all know, of course, that um, Congress can define uh, the jurisdiction of, 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 of our courts, but not in such an irrational way. So we, we are pretty confident we're going to win this case, but we have to, I mean, win the standing issue. Mm -hmm. But you're right to raise it because it is the government's first line of defense. Um, I've never heard anybody in the government actually defend the, the constitutional structure that we're attacking. Um, no one's ever actually said this is really good government. What they, what they say is that, well, you haven't been hurt yet. I think one, one point we should just add, I, I would like to add to that is I think we was all sold Dodd-Frank on this idea that it was 
aimed at the largest institutions, that it really wasn't an act that affected any other than a few, a handful of potentially quite large and, and, and whose, whose, whose failure would be destructive to the economy. But that really isn't the case. And with the, with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a lot of those standards, for example, these new mortgage standards that Boyden mentioned a few minutes ago, they're in fact um, industry standards now. They apply to everybody. So everybody has to work their way through those thousand pages and understand what they mean, and they disproportionately affect small institutions, and that's very important. Um, well, also, in addition to that, as something you well know, it is absolutely amazing how many times these laws hurt the little people the worst. And we've said it for, well, we meaning libertarians, have said it for years, but that's why I'm a libertarian. When it comes to the CFPB, uh, if they make credit so expensive, the one thing they can't do is draw, dry up the market for credit. Uh, they can't do that at all. There were indentured servants at a time when there was no market for credit and people thought that was a good option and that's pretty much as hypercredit. So if they make credit so expensive and they very well, they will, so expensive that there are no more payday lenders, there are no more options for people who may not have the best credit scores but still need credit of some sort, well then they're going to go to loan sharks and other types of unsavory institutions uh, and they're going to be hurt the worst in all this. It's not the big guys, it's the little guys. I should, let me just uh, say a couple of other things. I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm not defending payday lenders. I will defend our little bank in Big Springs, Texas, but payday lenders, you know, I mean, but, you know, did they cause the crisis? You know, did our little bank in Big Springs, Texas cause the crisis? It never syndicated a loan. Uh, it never sold it, uh, sold one. Um, what's the deal here? Less than 18 hours after they filed suit, we filed suit on their behalf, uh, the, their, their examiner from the Office of the Control of the Currency, which is in the Treasury, called up the CEO and said, what are you doing? Why didn't you tell us? People upstairs want to know. Who are you talking to? Who in the press have you interviewed? And uh, this is pretty chilling stuff, um, I think. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, Mr. Cannon, could you go back to the issue about taxation and particularly as it relates to the IPAB uh, of their being able to essentially appropriate their own funds? One of the ways that succeeding Congresses have often, have often uh, dealt with laws that they can't amend but they don't like is to starve the beast and deny appropriations. Uh, how does that work in the case of both the IPAB and the uh, the Dodd-Frank bill? Well, it doesn't. Uh, and that's because uh, the statute allows the secretary, if she f assumes full control of IPAB's powers, to appropriate funds to her own agency. Uh, I, I might argue that Starve the Beast doesn't seem to work very well at all because we've sort of been trying that with a the exception of a small interruption in the 1990s for 30 or so years right now, and the size of government doesn't seem to be, uh, or, or government spending doesn't seem to be growing or uh, curtailed by the fact that we have huge deficits. But in, in the case of IPAB, when the secretary has the ability to appropriate funds, not just to maybe siphon off some Medicare funds, but actually to appropriate funds to her own agency, uh, spelled out in the statute, uh, what else do you need? Um, you're right about the two examples in the uh, Dodd-Frank bill. To repeat what I said earlier, with the consumer agency, it's funded by the Fed. So the Fed just prints money and, and gives it money. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that Congress is prohibited in the future from appropriating money for it, but that hasn't happened. And uh, if they're smart, they won't let it happen. Um, they won't ask for it. Uh, with the Financial Resolution Authority, again, uh, the bridge uh, loan and the temporary funding, which could run for months or years, comes from the Treasury, comes from, from a loan which is to be paid off by an assessment of those in the financial services industry at large, uh, and it's not controlled by a congressional uh, authorization uh, or appropriation. Yeah, so again, the Congress, the Congress is really cut out. They can go in and they can change the law, but fat chance, uh, at least with the president, who certainly will veto it.